You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. If you know somebody who isn't on social media because they hate it or because they say it's toxic and bad for our brains and bad for democracy in general, well, you should congratulate that person. They've had a pretty good week. Over the past seven days, we have seen Facebook, sorry, excuse me, Meta, lose $80 billion in value and sink to its lowest stock price in years after missing earnings targets. Mostly, that's because Mark Zuckerberg is relentless in his pursuit of building the metaverse. And if you haven't seen the metaverse yet, no worries. Just imagine your Microsoft Teams calls meeting those chunky early 3D video game graphics from the early 2000s with a virtual reality headset on your face. Nonetheless, Zuckerberg is undeterred. He will move us all into his VR world or perhaps sink his entire company in the attempt. And speaking of sinking companies in the attempt... It's a bluebird day for Elon Musk. But clouds of uncertainty are in the forecast as the world's richest man takes over Twitter for 44 billion bucks after months of roller coaster drama and legal wrangling. Elon Musk now owns Twitter, which is not even close to being the largest or most profitable social media platform, but does somehow garner an awful lot of attention despite that. Depending on who you talk to, Musk's acquisition of Twitter is either a huge win for free speech a sign of impending doom for the platform, or not much at all. Musk's first move as owner of Twitter was a public negotiation with author Stephen King over how much he should charge King for verification. An interesting start. Anyway, all of this is to say that two popular global platforms that have been ground zero for social media's influence on the world at large are currently undergoing radical changes. What does that mean for the future of the medium, for the future of the so-called town square, for the future of technology? And why should you care, even if you've never spent a minute on either of them? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jesse Hirsch is a technologist, he is a futurist, and you can read his writings on these subjects at jessehirsch.com. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Jordan. Why don't, first, for the lucky people who are listening who don't spend much time thinking about the workings of various social media platforms, um, can you just outline what has happened over the past week or so to two of the very biggest ones, first Meta and then Twitter? I think the best way to describe it is disruption. I mean, there's a phrase often associated with Silicon Valley of move fast and break things. 
And I kind of think we're seeing exactly that. Two very large companies uh, attempt to reinvent themselves and in so doing, deliberately perhaps break things in the hopes that they can allow phoenixes to rise out of the ashes. But it's also engendering a lot of skepticism, a lot of criticism that are making people wonder, are we seeing the death of Meta, aka Facebook? Are we seeing the demise of Twitter? Or is this a renewal in which both companies both platforms are in a position to address the challenges of the future and reemerge as the kind of titans of media, the, the titans of social media that they've always aspired to be. Now, I know the people who use these platforms a lot are probably interested in what's happening to them just because it's part of their daily lives. But why should the average person, even if they're not on Twitter or don't care about Facebook anymore, why should they care about what happens to these companies as opposed to what happens to other companies like Best Buy or KPMG or Nintendo? Well, I think part of it is is the word influence to kind of uh, riff off a concept and that these are, are catalytic companies. They, they influence our perception of reality. They influence democracy in terms of how we form opinions and who we choose to vote for. And that while these businesses uh, uh, may not have the same size or weight as some major manufacturers or car manufacturers, they have tremendous amounts of influence and power. I mean, Twitter in particular, because it's used by politicians and journalists. And Facebook and Meta, in part because they're huge players in the advertising industry and very much influence what people choose to buy and what brands and products they look to. And both are really being challenged by TikTok right. as a newcomer, but also as the kind of 800-pound gorilla in the room. They're gobbling a lot of those advertising dollars. And that's put a lot of pressure on these companies to adapt, to kind of transform. And so, really, we're talking about our media space, our media industry, and what Elon Musk calls the town square. Mm -hmm. So, to your point, even if you're not privy to those conversations, your friends are. The, the rest of the media environment is. And I think that's why they have a real outsized influence compared to the, the fact that on some levels, they may be irrelevant to some people's lives. Let's start with Meta, aka Facebook then, um, just because it's the larger one of the two. Last week, its stock plummeted. Why and what's going on? What are they trying to do over there? Well, on the one hand, what they're trying to do is anticipate the future, anticipate the rise of a metaverse, a sort of virtual reality, kind of a, a future of the internet where it becomes more visual, uh, more virtual in terms of emulating what Fortnite or Roblox have achieved in terms of immersive virtual environments. How's that going so far? And not very well. And I think what we're seeing is, is the market, investors saying, yeah, I don't think it's working out for you, pal. And that's part of why their stock price is plummeting. Now, their revenues are also being hurt, which is my point about TikTok gobbling up advertising dollars. But Meta, and in particular, Meta's controlling shareholder and chairman and CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, he believes the metaverse is the future. That's partly why they changed their name to Meta. But he's also spending a lot of internal resources, both in terms of talent and actual money, trying to develop virtual reality headsets, trying to develop virtual environments that he thinks is the future of media, is the future of work, is the future of how we will communicate with each other. 
And I think what we're seeing is the general public, but in particular, stock market investors saying, we're not so sure. We don't think you're making the right choice. And as a result, we're, we're selling shares. We're, we don't want to invest in your vision of the future. And unfortunately, I don't think that Zuckerberg or Meta's getting the message in that they're still quite committed and still allocating tremendous resources to investing in the metaverse as the future of media, whereas most people are not buying virtual reality headsets and are not spending their time in immersive virtual environments. And that may present a real problem for the company moving forward. So we first had you on this show in our first year, uh, just about four years ago now. And I went back to the first uh, appearance and we were discussing Facebook and elections. And you said that part of what Zuckerberg was aiming for with Facebook was to have us all basically living our lives and existing on Facebook, including voting or engaging in debates or whatever. And that, like, looking back on it now, that sure does seem to be the goal with the metaverse. Um, so whether or not it's succeeding right now, what's been your impression of this new direction? Like, does it have a chance to get there? And is that why Zuckerberg is continuing to invest in it? Because, you know, this is inevitable one way or the other, and these are just bumps in the road? Or does the metaverse that we're seeing not actually jive with what you imagined Facebook would become? Well, the irony is that nothing is inevitable provided you're willing to pay attention. And there is still a thing as consumer choice. There is still a thing as user agency. And while Meta is attempting to do a containment strategy, right, they're, they're trying to get two steps ahead so that whatever they think the future is be is going to be, that they'll be there first, mm -hmm. sort of create the walled garden that keeps us part of that future. But TikTok presents a different kind of future. TikTok presents a future that's less virtual reality and more responsive video and, and even responsive audio. And so I, I think, as many others do, that, that Facebook is making a fatal mistake. And the other thing that we talked about four years ago was the governance problems, right? The fact that Mark Zuckerberg is a de facto dictator. Right. Facebook as a platform is, is more akin to a parliament where everybody gets a, a voice, where everyone can debate and share their opinion. And I think if he were to ask Facebook users, do you want to wear a virtual reality headset? A lot of the moms, a lot of the older users would probably say, no, I like my Facebook the way it is. Yeah. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so part of the problem, ironically, might be an echo chamber that, that Zuckerberg and his engineers are assuming a future that nobody else shares. So they're rushing forward in one direction while the rest of us go in the opposite direction. My last question on Facebook before we, or I should say my last question on Meta before we move on is, you know, Zuckerberg has more money than God at this point. There's obviously, as you point out, not many people in his inner circle to dissuade him from the direction he thinks he's going to pursue. Is it possible, because this would have seemed inconceivable to me a couple of years ago, is it possible he runs this company into the ground trying to achieve this dream? Like what would have to happen for that to occur? So I, I don't think he's going to run the company into the ground, but he, he could run the company into irrelevance. And I think it's funny that, that you and I, as avid social media users, still by default call the company Facebook. 
Oh, yeah. I've had a really hard time. Even when I was writing notes for this show, I kept having to erase it. Well, and and I think that's quite telling, that even though the company has spent a lot of money rebranding, we still use Facebook. We still use Instagram. Our relationship with the company is kind of based on the past, and it doesn't really reflect the future that Zuckerberg desires. I, I think Facebook will continue to be relevant. I think Instagram, in, in trying to emulate TikTok, is certainly, at the very least, able to still be a player up on the stage but I think their relevance and their influence is waning. So, so while I don't think there's any danger of kind of meta burning and crashing, I think that they are just becoming, you know, an, another channel, right? And an, another voice within a very crowded media landscape. And while that might hurt Zuckerberg's ego, to, to your point, his wealth is relatively secured. And I think it's no coincidence that his 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 old deputy, his old number two, Sheryl Sandberg, left the company because she was the kind of person who would speak truth to power. She was the kind of person who would tell Mark, you know, when she thought he was making a bad move. And the fact that she retired, that she took all the money she made and said, I'm going to focus on philanthropy – that's kind of revealing as to the loss of confidence that he's faced as a leader. Right. He's still relatively young, so there is time for him to turn it around. But I think with with every delay, with every day he goes into the wrong direction, it'll be even harder for him to catch up with other disruptors, with other new innovators and entrepreneurs who could today be creating the next Facebook They'll still be a dinosaur, but, you know, dinosaurs can still live long and healthy lives as long as an asteroid doesn't come and wipe them out. I'm glad you mentioned influence uh, when talking about Meta, because now I want to talk about Twitter. And before we discuss Elon Musk's purchase of it, one of the things that surprised me when I was doing some research for this is... Twitter gets an awful lot of coverage. It gets an awful lot of attention uh, over especially this acquisition. It is nowhere near the top of the list of social media platforms with the biggest number of users. Like, it's way down there. Why does Twitter have this outsized importance relative to, like, you know, it's miles behind Instagram, TikTok, uh, Snapchat, all these things? It, it really is about elites. And, and this might be political elites, media elites, uh, corporate elites, cultural elites. You know, Twitter has always been effective at allowing signals to, to arise from the noise. I mean, I, I find Facebook and Instagram are, are very noisy. It's, it's mm-hmm. hard to understand what is accurate, what isn't. Versus I've found Twitter to be indispensable when navigating the pandemic. Right. If you have a high level of media literacy, Twitter is a very valuable research tool, a very valuable intelligence tool. And I think where it has failed to attract the general public or retain the general public, it has been very good at being uh, attracting researchers, attracting journalists, uh, attracting corporate leaders. And and that's what's allowed it to sustain itself and, and swing above its weight class when it comes to the influence it has. And where I kind of agree with Mr. Musk is that Twitter has really uh, not taken advantage of that. There, there's a lot of revenues, a lot of commercial opportunities, a lot of software opportunities that Twitter could have leveraged or could have pursued 
but didn't. And so I think where he sees value, where others haven't, is elevating Twitter to a kind of super app, to a, a kind of you know ecosystem rather than just a single platform. Mm. Whether he can pull it off, of course, is the multi-billion dollar question. But it fundamentally comes down to Twitter being the kind of media of record that news happens on Twitter and then it's reported by the New York Times or the Globe and Mail. And if Twitter can maintain that influence, then it can perhaps deliver on, on the gamble or the risk that, that Mr. Musk has, has taken to buy it. It's in fact a $44 billion question. And it's been in the works for months now. Um, when it went through last week, were you surprised when it was first announced way back uh, in late spring, early summer? Did you think this would actually go through and occur? Uh, not at all. And I say that because I'm not a lawyer. Right. And, and I thought that Musk was posturing and and sort of doing this as one of his classic kind of PR plays. And I suspect he also didn't think that he'd have to go <laughs> through with it. And unfortunately, the contract that he signed compelled him to, right? That he, he, he was rather reckless and rash in terms of how he negotiated this deal. And it would have cost him a lot to get out of it, both reputationally and economically. So I think he was left with no choice but to follow his rhetoric, to follow his whim. That's not to say that he couldn't get a return, especially because he was successful in finding other people like the Saudi Arabia Sovereign Fund to, to back him. So it's not entirely his money, but it is arguably overvalued. But again, if if part of this isn't economics, if part of this is politics, if part of this is influence, if if part of this is sort of maintaining his profile as a grand pitchman, as a you know, as as a kind of quasi media guru, then maybe it's not just about economics. Maybe it is about culture. Maybe it is about politics, and that can justify that forty four billion dollar price tag. Maybe it's about the fact that we're now at the 10-year anniversary of the time he said he would put a man on Mars within 10 years. And this is a really good way for people to pay attention to something else. Well, distraction is definitely why uh, Facebook changed their name to Meta. And so to your point, I think this not only allows Mr. Musk to change the channel, but perhaps literally influence, if not control, reality. Because that is what social media fundamentally offers, is a, a virtual reality, a, a way to manufacture reality and manufacture perception. And that's where I almost joke that Elon Musk is kind of becoming an arch villain before our very eyes, <laughs> in that he's not only the richest person in the world, but he certainly has a desire to play politics, to, to influence global events. And now he's got one of the largest soap boxes in the world to do so. You just mentioned that Musk certainly likes to play politics. You also mentioned that uh, a bunch of this money is coming from the Saudis. As somebody who uses Twitter daily, when Musk took over, I couldn't really decide whether or not this is like the end of Twitter as we know it and this place is going to become a hell site and full of hate and everybody who matters is going to leave, including me, or if it's something that a new businessman bought it, he's going to try to make some revenue off it and okay, it won't really matter at all. What's your impression? 
I, I, I'm of the, I'm of the belief. Don't believe the hype, right? I, I actually don't see much difference between the old owners and the new owners, the old management and the new management. You know, I, I think that uh, uh, Mr. Musk will be able to attempt things that the previous management didn't feel empowered or mandated to do, and, and I think that's a positive. I think as a negative, he made increase the noise and diminish the signal. And I think that could be an overall negative. But I don't think the sky is falling. I I don't think that Twitter was ever really that great to begin with. I think it's had a slew of problems, Mm -hmm. you know, abuse and hate and moderation being front and center. I don't think the company ever effectively addressed that. So it's not clear to me how he could make it much worse we we did see a kind of rally of trolls in the last week trying to yes. push the limits and you know while that is disturbing it was happening before then hmm. it just wasn't getting the attention that everybody was drawing to it the same way that there have been constant migrations of people leaving the platform but where are they going right i i fundamentally i don't think twitter has any competition I think there's an opportunity now for a large media company or, you know, a a, a large conglomerate to introduce a competitor. Certainly there is a desire to see a more competitive landscape. But fundamentally, in present terms, there there is no alternative. There is no competition. There's smaller alternatives that provide a completely different place, a different function, and a different culture— But there is no media company that currently competes with Twitter or allows for the same influence or reach that Twitter has. So I'm of the wait and see camp. I I think there's every reason to believe that that he's going to make mistakes, that he's going to screw up. But there's equal reason to believe that he's going to do something different that could create new interest and new excitement. And that one person alone cannot change an ecosystem as large as Twitter. This is fundamentally about whether he attracts new talent and new ideas to the platform. And he could, given how stale the platform has been the last few years. Well, let's talk about that then, because uh, the first thing that we saw, obviously, was uh, a plan to charge for verification and other services uh, that started at $20 a month, came down to $8 a month when Stephen King said publicly that he would not pay it, and Elon decided to negotiate with him uh, in public. But besides that, you mentioned as soon as we started to talk about this that you were interested in some of the things he could do to increase revenue, to change Twitter, to improve it. Uh, What do you see in his plan for the site, and, and what do you think he could do? Well, on the one hand, I think the the focus on getting verified users to pay is both smart and stupid at the same time. Yeah. I, I say this in the sense that I think getting influencers, I think getting the power users of Twitter to pay is a very smart idea. But I wouldn't charge them $8 a month. I would charge them $8,000 a month. 
right? In that there are power users on Twitter who would pay that price because they're making more money than that based on the reach and based on the influence. The opportunity here is to be surgical, not to use a blunt object. And full disclosure, I'm verified on Twitter. Me too. I was verified, quite honestly, through corrupt means. (laughs) (laughs) Tell that story. What do you mean? Well, I never believed that I earned or deserved that. I was just in the right room at the right time where someone had the arbitrary power to make it happen. And they said, hey, Jesse, do you want a blue check mark?" I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, that's what happened to me at work as well. They were collecting names of people who worked in this media department that I was working in and submitting them all en masse to Twitter because they wanted their big names to be verified. And I just sort of scanned my way on the list. Right. And and that's part of the problem is that he's inheriting a system that is kind of broken. And as someone who's had that blue check mark for years, I don't think I benefited at all from it. Like my tweets are still lost, right? I, I don't get any special attention. I, I don't get any special visibility. So there's no way I'm going to pay $8 a month to keep it, right? I, I don't see any value at all. But I do think that there are a lot of power users on Twitter who should be charged, who would pay. But you can't do it as a blanket policy. It has to be part of a precision strategy. It has to be part of a smarter sales strategy where you recognize that someone like Mr. Beast or someone like Kim Kardashian or, you know, the, 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 the real people who make money off Twitter, who make money because of the influence they have, they're the ones who would pay and who should pay. But I, I, I don't agree with the premise that Twitter is plagued by bots or that Twitter is plagued by mm-hmm. anonymous voices. I, I think that those problems are not going to be addressed by this measure. And instead, he's just going to alienate a lot of people like us who either can't afford to pay or don't see any value in paying. So I think it's a real stupid policy. But a smart idea that he did sort of hint at, which I think is smart, is emulating some of the e-commerce features that we see in Chinese-based social media, like Weibo, which is a, a, a sort of Twitter equivalent in mainland China. And that's where you're just making it easier for people to buy and sell stuff on the platform. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? It it acknowledges that Twitter is de facto a kind of marketplace, that there are brands and companies who want to sell stuff there, and there are other people who want to learn about products and want to buy those products. So the same way that Apple takes 30% of any transaction that happens on their platform, Twitter could enable a marketplace. Twitter could compete with Amazon and Apple and any other e-commerce venture. I think he will pursue that. I think that definitely has potential. But again, it has to be based on precision. It has to be smart rather than be blanket because Twitter has more people who are broke than people who have money. And trying to extract blood from a stone is pointless versus going after the wealth, going after the big fish in the sea. That makes sense. 
And it's not clear to me that they have the staff or the talent or the expertise to do that presently. So that's where initially I'm, I'm kind of skeptical whether these grand plans can be implemented and executed because they're still regarding Twitter as this homogenous marketplace or platform when in fact it's incredibly diverse and they should treat it with that kind of, you know, intelligence rather than assuming that all twits are equal. We'll have to see. It's only been a week, so... I'll give it another few. Apparently, the uh, the coding deadlines are like tomorrow and the day after that. So what worries me uh, from what we've seen in the first week is, is that we're seeing another dictator rise, right? What, where, where Twitter was both problematic and powerful was the fact that there was never one person in control. That, that mm. they were always able to have debates, that they were always able to have discussions. And even though Musk is making use of polls, to your point about the $20 coming down to $8, he is still just one guy. And he's a guy who's also running other companies. So whether he's going to have people who can speak truth to power, whether he's going to have people who can tell him, look, buddy, that's stupid— I don't know. And, and, and that's what makes me think that he's following in the paths of Zuckerberg when instead he should be creating a kind of parliament that he is accountable to. And, and that's why I, I think what we've seen in the first week may actually be more of a preview of what's to come because one guy cannot run an ecosystem. You, you need a team of really smart and capable people who are diverse He's saying he's going to create a moderation council that'll be diverse, but that's not enough. He he needs a board of directors that will actually hold him accountable. And the fact that he's taken Twitter private, that it's no longer publicly traded, I, I think that's a real problem from a governance perspective moving forward. You tied it back up really nicely and you led into the very last thing I want to ask you about, which is uh, the creator of Twitter, former uh, CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, is working on a new project called Blue Sky. Now, this is something probably uh, many listeners haven't heard of. It's not exactly a social media platform, I guess. Um, It started signing people up for its beta last week. I wanted to take the opportunity to ask you, because I know you're always up on these things, what is Blue Sky and could it be useful or a player in this landscape? So it has potential in the sense that it's both focusing on decentralization and open source. So on the one hand, he's kind of embracing the blockchain or cryptocurrency ethos that you don't want a single point of failure, that you don't want a predominant actor or company to be in control. And he's embracing the open source revolution of technology, of allowing any developer, regardless of their experience, to offer improvements, to to offer iteration and, and new features. And I think those are two very powerful ingredients that that allow Blue Sky to, to have potential, to be viable. But I think we have to be honest that, that media in our contemporary society is driven by corporations. It's driven by brands. You know, if he had AT&T and Time Warner on side, you know, maybe, right, if, if he was you know, uh, uh, had the New York Times as a major sponsor or partner that wanted to help seed content, possibly. But I think it's still a nerd's dream. It's still someone who's focusing on the technology, who's focusing on the 
functionality when Twitter's success has as much to do with politics and culture as it does with the economics and technology driving it. So I'm curious about what Dorsey's doing. I'm curious about the potential for Blue Sky. But TikTok continues to be the 800-pound gorilla in the room. TikTok's algorithm uh, has a much more efficient and responsive approach to sorting through an ecosystem of information that if TikTok tomorrow said, hey, we're going to create a tic- a Twitter clone, that would be a viable competitor. That would be someone that all of a sudden we would start paying attention to. And quite frankly, I would sign up for immediately. And, and I think that speaks to how this, this isn't a game of upstarts. This is a game of giants, of titans. And, and even though mice can run around at the feet of giants and, you know, survive and maybe get a few squeaks and a bit of cheese here and there, this is about high stakes and, and, and big power. And that's where, uh, unfortunately, Twitter does not really have any challengers at this point unless they alienate advertisers, unless they alienate brands to such a powerful extent that they start allocating their money somewhere other than TikTok. Because right now, TikTok is where those advertisers are quite eager to, to spend their money. Jesse, thank you so much for this. Great conversation. Thanks, Jordan. Jesse Hirsch a technologist and a futurist, and not all that inaccurate from four years ago, truth be told, which is pretty good in this day and age. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can type in Jesse Hirsch in the search bar at the very bottom and listen to his old episodes, and then you can come and find us and tell us exactly where he, or more likely, I, was wrong. You can do that by finding us on Twitter at the Big Story FPN. You can do it by emailing us hello at the Big Story And you can call old fashioned in this day of social media, but you can call and leave a message 416 935 5935. The Big Story is available in every podcast player. Who knows? Maybe one day in a separate little tab on Twitter or Facebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.